The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. My guest today has over 30 years of experience in the transformation of people's lives in both personal and business arenas. His training in clinical and sports psychology, including the adoption of Eastern meditative practices, had developed strategies to support life's challenges in many areas of life. As best-selling author, his latest book, Bouncing Back, explores the eight key principles to ensuring that success and recovery realized during those times of greatest difficulty facing people today. The book illustrates these techniques through the experiences of great athletes and their own journey to success. Dr. Ron Mann, good afternoon to you. Hello. Thank you so much for being on the program. We're going to uh, be talking about your book today, uh, Bouncing Back, which I believe is launching in July sometime. July 1st. I have read through this book, and and we've talked before the program, and I'm extremely interested in the wider issues that we have talked about, uh, particularly in people generally in finding that sense of consciousness. Before we go there, can we just look back at your life, where you came from, how you became a psychologist looking at the early days? Well, it's actually an interesting story. I became a psychologist because I was sitting in a uh, classroom in junior high school, and the teacher was giving some lecture about psychology. It was a 10-minute segment of you know the semester. She had made a little Rorschach inkblot uh, example on the backboard. She mentioned it, and I heard this little voice. It came from kind of the right side up above, and it said, when you grow up, you'll be a psychologist. I've heard that voice three times. Uh, once for that, once on my way to my wedding going, you know, it will never work. <laughs> and I said, How honest shut up. You? It's too late for that. <laughs> and so that little voice said, you'll be a psychologist. So... I didn't tell anybody, but I always wondered, you know, what was that about? And sure enough, as my life unfolded, I was thinking um, I needed to do something. I was kind of lost in college. I thought, well, I'll go get a law degree. That's a good education. And I didn't get accepted anyway, anywhere, and I was kind of happy about that. And then I got into a, a master's program in educational psychology that was actually uh, headed by George Brown. In those days, he was very involved with Fritz Perls and uh, Esalen Institute. And the whole thing was about Gestalt therapy. And while it was a uh, program, presumably to be a high school counselor, it really had a lot more depth to it. And I had a clinical placement where I was trained by psychologists. I didn't go into a high school. I went into a mental health center. And for two years, I did what I ended up doing as a psychologist, being trained that way. So I realized that I needed a PhD to really have the level of competency, a master's 
wasn't going to do it. So I went on and got accepted into the California school. What was it, though, before that that was the catalyst into becoming a psychologist? Yes, I understand what you're saying, but was there an event? Was there something in your family or was there something with people that initiated these thoughts of wanting to better understand people? I think realistically... Everybody who gets in the field does it because they're trying to heal themselves. My family was not the healthiest family in the world. Could have been worse, but it wasn't great. I had an uncle who was a psychiatrist who I had a lot of respect for. And I know that when I was in that master's program, I started having experiences about uh, presence and authenticity and a connection. It was the first time I ever felt any real loving connection to a person was in that group. There was a vibration there that was love that was very new to me. And I thought, there's a depth in this uh, way of being and this profession. And I really took it because I thought that personally I could find value uh, in this education. Is that suggesting that prior to moving into academia, you were in an environment that you weren't comfortable in, that perhaps you were you found yourself insulated in? I would say my family was very disconnected. Uh, I remember as, as a kid having a certain kind of uh, subtle perception, and I remember seeing, looking in the living room, and everybody's talking, and, and I actually saw like horizons, kind of like you see the heat coming off the ground. You know, there's the level that everybody's talking at, and then there's the truth. And I kept waiting for somebody to say something down here that would ring to me as true, so I could respond to something. Nobody ever did. I was very quiet uh, in my family. I kept waiting for somebody to, to show up. And so I would say the, the dysfunction in my family was the lack of my parents' capacity to really bond and connect in an open-hearted way. They were both, both so guarded and so protected. So you, you go into academia. What occurs then as you, you become involved with a different crowd that perhaps are, are more have a greater level of consciousness, understanding that you're actually going into a program around psychology. How does that change you now as far as it affects your relationship with your family? Well, first of all, the word consciousness for me implies certain kind of spiritual realization. It's a connection to the self that's beyond the mind. In those days, psychology did not have that. So I would say that my academic training started to at least get me in the direction of being authentic from a psychological point of view. Let's talk about what's really going on. Let's say the truth. Let's not be in denial, avoidance, things like that. So what it did was it started to make me more honest with my family, uh, which created problems because my mother didn't like me confronting her on the, some of the crazy things she was doing. And my father didn't like it because he then had to deal with her being upset. So he would tell me to shut up so she wouldn't get all riled up. So the, the academic training, uh, because of the school I was in, had with it psychotherapy. That was part of the deal. So I thought, well, if I'm going to do this, I should at least find out how the thing works, right? So I get into therapy. I'm going two, three times a week. And it was that internal exploration that helped me begin to clean up my personality. But the real shift didn't happen until I had the spiritual awakening. When you talk about spiritual awakening, are you talking about this degree of mastery 
over yourself, over your surroundings, over other people, and getting deeper in into a realm yourself that really does put everybody else aside for a while while you work on yourself? Well, the particular path that I've been involved with has a integration between one's internal personal development and helping the world. It, it isn't the model of you go into a cave and you kind of work on yourself and then you come out. It's kind of done in the world, but initially the realization was that I was more than a physical being. Uh, I had very substantial experiences that showed me I was an energetic being. I started feeling realms of love that I had read about, but I had never, ever experienced. I had so much love going through me, I could hardly contain it uh, in my body. I started having clairvoyant perception of people. I, if they had diseases, I knew what was going on in the body. If they had certain thoughts, when I was really quiet, I, I would know what they're thinking. I could see the issues that they had to work on, which was a great asset as a psychologist. So the, the awakening was about my deeper self that clearly was beyond the material. Uh, the, the soul for me is a real intangible thing that is timeless and exists beyond uh, this particular incarnation. Yeah, I mean, it's all around that principle of, of space-time. And I suppose that when you reach that state that you're talking about, you are you are now becoming a real physical presence so that you're almost like uh, some sort of electromagnetic magnetic wave of energy and i guess where i'm going with this is that as you develop that and i know in all of us it takes years and years and years and we're still learning as awakened as we are it does begin to affect other people if if you're truly in that spiritual state of consciousness so as you develop that and you you travel through academia and you you understand the basic principles of of academics and you're still working on yourself now in dealing with other people are you finding now that they are changing because of your physical influence upon them well yes i think that's the gift because if you come into consciousness like you said there's an energetic field it gets created by you as a conscious being. So you also have a certain kind of responsibility to clean up your inner life because whatever is going on inside affects everybody around you. So if you do the work, and now you're this um, kind of magnetic field that emanates well beyond your physical body, anybody being in your presence can be affected by that. And so in my work with people, uh, just showing up would have a major impact in their life because now I'm living in a state where consciously I'm meditating hours a day so I'm more peaceful than most people. I'm more quiet. Uh, I have a, a field around me that hopefully is more loving and more, more joyful and it magnetizes people to be in that state. And one of the, the main things that even to this day I find is that you know it's unusual that you show up and you talk to somebody and they're actually very present and they listen. Most people, their mind is distracted, they're thinking about other things, so they go on. If I just show up and pay attention to somebody, they end up telling me things, they go, I don't know why I'm telling you this stuff. You know, I never tell anybody this stuff. And they go on and on and on. I can't get them to stop talking, you know, because they're so hungry to have somebody so available to really be there and listen. And if you're going to be in a healing profession, that's probably a pretty good 
place to be. And we're going to primarily, I think, focus on these eight fundamentals that you cite in your book. What are the... I don't like the word challenges because I, I think it has such a negative connotation, but we'll, we'll use it anyway. What are the challenges ongoing, even now in life, when you connect with people? You have this influence. You are comfortable with yourself. You are spiritually aware and other people change around you. What are the roadblocks that you encounter with that and that may at times as as aware as you are push you back slightly well so it's a good question there's a saying that environment is stronger than willpower and so if i'm in an environment could be just one person or could be a group of people and they are closed because they just have not had some internal kind of awakening experience so they're closed down they're guarded they're angry uh they're manipulative uh it's a very painful experience for me to be in that place. And I actually feel like crying a lot of times when I'm in that place. And I've learned over the years, uh, not to take it personally, it's a indicator for me about the field that I'm in, the consciousness, which says they're not open, they're not available. And so for me, it's about patience. Is that patience come along with a level of sacrifice on your part? Well, it's a level of sacrifice to the extent that I uh, choose to be in the world. I've thought about joining monastic centers or whatever. I see these uh, kid kung fu movies and they're in China someplace. You know, I remember those times you know, where I was in those pristine environments and, and they're so loving and they're so protected that the sacrifice for me is to be in an environment that sometimes is pretty toxic. I spend a lot of time on the golf course. Years ago, I wouldn't have been able to put up with the people that I end up playing golf with because most guys on the golf course are pretty dense, realistically. There's a, a few that are exceptions, but the consciousness on the golf course is pretty bad. Uh, you know, people are highly competitive. They're angry. You know, you put a little money on the line, and, and all of a sudden their whole personality changes. I can stand that now where years ago I wouldn't even be, be there. I couldn't take it. Can we look at those principle problems that we as humans have you know we have addictions sense of betrayal fear insecurity um, bitterness is that not more common now than it ever has been before uh, I, I don't know in I, your life but I, I, I see it, um, it and it is it is what is it, it, it's overtaking society in in so many ways how do you, because I'm learning this and I'm practicing this, how do you convert, no, that's a bad word, how do you try and help people to overcome those addictions? Because actually they are, if you, if you put them into one group, they are really all addictions, modern day addictions, that, that people sit in, in, in this world. And what is it that you have to work on with people to take them from this world to a what I call a special world, where they can really discover themselves without having to constantly batter down other people? Because humans, they tend to point point their point their fingers, and four fingers are always pointing back at them, and that that illustrates all of these addictions. 
What is that tipping point that goes between um, that desperation and then taking them into this wonderful world of, of realization, being in this realm of deep consciousness and understanding the importance of making themselves well before anything else? It's a great question. I don't think that you can take anybody anywhere where they don't want to go, where they're not ready to go. And I think the addictions you're talking about is an alienation from the soul. People are looking to get filled up. They feel empty, uh, and they can't tolerate being connected to a deeper self, so they go out and try and distract themselves through um, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. I mean, any of the, the senses that you can do where drugs gives you a artificial sense of well-being. I think as a, a conscious person who wants to help make the world a better place, and it could be individuals around you or in a larger scale, unless you're living in that state, all you're doing is coming from your mind and you're talking about something that may sound interesting to somebody, but it will have no real impact on them at the deepest level because you don't live in that realized state. The most important thing you can do is to wake up and then be that energetic vortex that will kind of an, in an indivis indivisible way have an influence on the people around you because through the magnetic attraction, people will get changed. If they hang out in your presence long enough, sometimes it rubs off. Uh, the soul awakens when it's ready. There, there's a timing involved in that. A lot of times people don't even get motivated until life has really hurt them enough. And especially in addictions, you see that until they really have terrible, terrible problems. They're not ready to do that. But once somebody's ready and very interested, then you have someone who's open, receptive, and it's like a rocket ship. You can really make tremendous progress. If you look at our world today, we are we, we're really very manipulated um, by consumerism. And uh, money has become very much the idol which, which I think is one of the huge problems that we face today. What is going to overcome that, Ron? Overcome this madness for greed, uh, the, the, the madness that we see in the Gulf of Mexico at the moment and the, the realization that it is human greed that creates these situations and yet people really follow like sheep because consumerism is manipulation. How is it going to, in your mind, change from being where we are today to being a much more simplistic world where, where money is not at the center of, of the soul? And I wish I had a happier answer, but my deepest intuition about this is because people are so addicted to that. And there is such a, especially in the West, such in third world countries are following us along, manipulation to get in that light. I don't think people on their own volition will wake up and realize that that's not the way to go. I think what will happen is that uh, things will be taken away through disasters. We're already, you know, we're, we experienced that already. And people realize, you know, I'm still here. You know, I don't have what I used to have. And I might even be happier. Somehow something has shifted within me. I, I thought I would never be able to survive without all my stuff. And now I don't have as much stuff and I'm still here. 
This is very much celebrated by uh, wonderful author, authors like E.F. Schumacher, who, um, Small is Beautiful, uh, that, that whole concept of shelving everything, shelving the idea that anything material-based or money can give you happiness. Um, shopping can't give you happiness. It, uh, none of these modern things can give you happiness, but unfortunately w people are so conditioned at the moment to be almost tunnel visioned on those things I, and I would agree with you I think it takes something quite shocking to change people's direction now, and, and, it, and it could be in two degree turns now that there is a flip side of that because like I had those particular awakenings for me and it didn't come through major disaster I wasn't dying I wasn't addicted I mean I kind of was lucky in a way I just kind of came into my life and I noticed when I would get something that I thought I always wanted, like I got my first home. I thought, oh, this is great. I bought a home. And the excitement of that, for me, lasted for about two minutes. And then I was left with myself. I mean, I had this new thing now. It's a home, but I hadn't changed. And it was striking that. I remember realizing, going, well, this isn't making me any happier. I've accomplished what I thought was a great goal. And at this point now, uh, whether I have a lot of stuff or don't have a lot of stuff, uh, it doesn't change my, my sense of myself and my sense of value and purpose. Obviously, it's easier uh, in our society to have money. You, know, you pay your bills, you get better health insurance, you, know, you might eat better, uh, there's less stress about you know, everyday life. But I've also been in India uh, a few times, and it was striking. I'm on the streets of Calcutta looking at people who are living either in a cardboard shack or all they have is a cardboard, so they're sitting on it. And there's so much joy and light coming out of them. Almost knocked me over. Yeah, I would share that. Uh, I directed a film in Nigeria back in 07, and uh, right in the middle of Nigeria. And, and it was, frankly, hell on earth, where people would, would sleep in mud on the sides of the road. And uh, I agree. Uh, when you don't have anything... Um, you have nothing to worry about, and yet there was something divine about those people. They would smile. And that's not that's something that you don't see in society, in Western society. There's a there's a falseness about it. Looking at spirituality, can I get a definition on that? Because I know that listeners are interested in the precise definition of spirituality. Is it religion motivated? Is there a, a religious element in that can you define just spirituality on its own sure yeah for me it has nothing to do with religion spirituality is the realization of one's direct living relationship with god and one's connection to all of uh life uh whether it's you know trees people that there's a a connection that's consciously realized it's energetic, uh, it has qualities of love and peace, uh, and it doesn't rest on your belief system. Religion, all different religions have different ideas about way to get there, and then people fight about those ideas and creates more conflict than good. If you strip away all that stuff, and if you go down to whatever practices there might be, like meditation, prayer, um, mantra stuff, saying you know name of God over and over again or whatever, serving people. Mother Teresa goes out and w would help people, give them rice right, as, as a spiritual practice. If your experience is that you're in a state of love and you want to serve humanity and you can 
feel the interconnection that we have and feel the divine presence of grace in your life, to me that's a spiritual life. So we are just in one existence here. It's my experience. And as the famous Professor Bill Tiller expressed recently, we're wearing this biosuit, but but that's just the beginning, or, it, or it's or it's in it, somewhere in a huge journey. Could be in the middle. It's not yes. the beginning. It's the continuity. So our our soul continues. Uh, it it is always there, and we're we're just on that road to finding ourselves, and having the huge profound honor of breathing this air and being here. And to me, we should be enjoying that every last second of it. Well, it's a blessing to be here, and when someone comes into the realization of that continuum, a lot of the drama of, oh, poor me, I'm so victimized by what's happening, starts to fall away, because if you're lucky enough to actually see some of your past incarnations, there's a thread there. There's a continuity. What you've done in the past could be three, four, five, hundred thousand incarnations ago. Until that gets balanced out, it shows up again here. It's karma, right? And so those past tendencies, the people show up to create certain kinds of experiences to balance that out. And when you see that, uh, no longer can you say, oh, poor me, I'm so victimized by life, because you can see exactly what you did to create that cause. So now the question is, okay, how do I neutralize that so I can get on and create better things in my life? If you're talking about a, a general sense of consciousness, do you think the evolution, not just of the the world that we live in, beyond that, will evolve successfully over time as more and more souls become ever more conscious of themselves? Is well, that is that how ultimately we are going to succeed in this? Well, I, I believe that there is a spiritual teacher of mine. Swami Sri Yukteswar, part of the Self-Realization Fellowship lineage. He was the guru of Paramahansa Yogananda. He wrote a little book called The Holy Science. And in it, he talks about the yugas. Now, the yugas are these cycles uh, of consciousness that uh, I'm not sure about the right number. It could be 100,000 years. could be 200,000 years. But in effect, as we evolve around the sun, as the earth continues to circle the sun, that we move. And we continue to move into higher and higher ages until the golden age comes where everybody's totally aware. And that is going to occur, is it not? Eventually. It could be thousands of years, it could be millions of years, but it's going to happen. Yeah, hundreds of thousands. Let's move move to your, your book, Bouncing Back. Did you know when the right time was to write this book? Did it come to you in some sort of uh, message that now I'm ready to write this? Or was there, was it just an inspiration or a message or was it more methodical? That How did that work? You know, I honestly don't remember the very beginning because as we spoke before the program that it started as a sports psychology book and uh, I've always been in, interested in, in the magic moments of life so I thought, well let's go find athletes who've had those and, and they're there. And so um, I I went after that because that's what my heart's about, finding the, the spiritual, magical moments in life and sharing that with other people. 
I thought, well, using athletes could be a, a good story. The, um, the publisher that I first had with it didn't want to publish the book because I didn't have enough household names and they wanted to sell a million copies on name recognition, which wouldn't have been a bad idea. But you know, people like Tiger Woods and Freddie Couples and Retief Goosen and um, Andre Agassi said, well, not while I'm competing. I don't want to talk about real personal things like we're talking now. They're not going to have this public conversation. So I put it away. Then there was that inner kind of compelling sense. I kept in it in meditation getting this intuitive sense. I had to finish the book. And so I'd look at the material. I got, this is great stuff. I just can't let it rot. You know, here I felt uh, irresponsible in a way. I collected this material. And I kept getting this push to do something with it. And then the economy shifted and markets crashed. People had you know, millions, if not more, stole from them. People are in crisis. And then it occurred to me I could change the focus of the book away from sports because the material is so good that I could talk about, you know, what does it take to prepare for and recover from life's greatest difficulties? Because the information in the book gives the roadmap for that. Because initially I call it the survival guide for disastrous times, and then it kind of changed to something a little more happy. With the, the, the characters that you cite in the book, are they all necessarily going in one direction and being successful and and taking advantage of every moment or are there possibly stories behind these that you don't talk about in the book where they may be going backwards at times well i think everybody has a like a learning curve in the sense you learn something and then something doesn't work too well i don't know if it's communicated well in there or not but uh, everybody falls down uh, I don't know anybody in life who hasn't been successful, and the people who are the most successful talk about perseverance and saying, you know, don't give up. You know, if you get it rejected a thousand times, keep going, and eventually something clicks. And so these people, uh, some of them, like Lee Brandon, she has an incredible story because she had her arm cut off, and uh, doctor said she would never be able to use that arm. She ended up being the Women's World Long Drive Champion twice over. Now, I didn't go into great details, some of the personal stories she told me about her family, because that seemed to be more than she wanted to share, and I'm not sure I want to tell you now because I don't have her permission, but clearly she went through a lot uh, to get to where she went, much more than just the, the physical issue of how do you rehab when you've basically lost your arm. She died on the operating table and went to the other side and had a near-death experience, which taught her a lot in, in, in a few seconds and changed her in a dramatic kind of way. I mean, most of the people, especially the boxers, uh, they had tough environments in their family. Uh, and they, they, they were fighting, and a lot of their parents said, well, if you're going to fight, then let's go in the ring and do it. And they were kind of channeled to use that direction. Were, were they aware of the journey uh, when you not only before you approach them, but when you were writing it and you were researching it and asking them questions, and then at the end, were they accepting that they were representing any particular type of character, or were they learning about themselves while you were investigating them? 
I think most of these people were very aware, because these are very accomplished, uh, bright, intelligent people. I think they were pretty aware of their own life and their own journey. I didn't get the feeling that any of them felt like they were a spokesperson for humanity. They were all very humble. They were, you know, this is my life. This is what I went through. I think I can help people. I don't think I'm the only one going through this kind of thing. Uh, Some of them are motivational speakers. They go out and share their story. But I didn't have any sense that they saw themselves in that kind of uh, mythic, heroic posture that they're somehow now uh, a vehicle for other people to learn from. They were very generous to share their time and tell me their stories. But but possibly they do provide that Arthurian legend-type character who people can learn from. Well, I think they do, and that's why I, I put him in the story. Because I, I interviewed more people than just this. I didn't use everybody. I used the ones that I thought were most applicable to uh, people on a larger scale. Let's move to the eight fundamental principles for survival. Uh, and th- there are some that I would rather... Uh, concentrate on more. Let's start with the first. The ability to adjust allows you to adapt to new and changing realities. Now, in in that sentence, to me, changing realities, let's talk about that and the adjustment. How would you define that changing realities in people? Well, life is always changing, whether it's internal or external. I mean, if you just look at the developmental sequence, sequence of life, I mean, you start as a baby and you uh, grow up and eventually die. I mean, your body's changing, your environment's changing. Uh, as you have life experiences, a lot of times people are so hurt and in reaction to to life's difficult, damaging experiences that they don't bounce back, to use this phrase, effectively to live their life. world is changing around us. People are losing great wealth. People lose loved ones. They lose jobs. They lose their homes. And the issue here is that if you're stuck and you can't adjust to new and changing realities, then you're in big trouble. I, I, and I was hoping you would say that because in many people that I know, this seems to be the greatest problem, is that people are unwilling to change because of fear. It is fear. They're holding on to what's familiar they're afraid to do something different, even though they're suffering and things aren't getting any better. They're comfortable in at least their mind going, well, I know what this is. I know how to be this way. But unfortunately, uh, they're living in a closet. And and I, I, and I guess why I'm making a point of this, because we talk about yourself, for example, as going through an awakening for very different reasons to maybe people going through an awakening or this deeper sense of consciousness because something awful happens but if people don't accept change they're actually going to they're going to be behind the curve are they not because they don't realize actually that they they are changing but if they don't do something about that to to continue with it to roll with it they're going to become almost stifled. And is that not half the problem that people have now? Well, clearly, if people don't change, they're not only behind the curve, they're going to end up under the bus because life is moving on. And if they don't get with the new program, 
uh, they're they're doomed. And, I, and we're not talking about in terms of external influences or people around them. We're talking about them themselves, their their own being. Well, we're talking about both in a way because when external realities change and internally you don't adjust realizing, okay, I have to do something new and different in order to cope with the new environment that's around me, then they become obsolete. Uh, In the book, uh, one of the people I interviewed was Buck Rogers, who is a um, well-known baseball coach, and he said he, he just couldn't get off the adjustment thing. That's why it's it's in here in a way. He said, you know, the people that I have coached and worked with and managed who have great skill and talent, but they don't make it professionally, it's because they can't adjust. They can't make the change. And I think that's true in, in life. I mean, one of the examples comes to mind. I think about the, the printing business. It used to be everything was on paper. Now, what if you have this great business, you know, and you're printing books and newspapers or whatever, and then a digital press is existing, and everybody's going digital, and you go, oh, but paper, I love paper, this is what I know. Is what I do. Well, eventually, you're going to be out of business. And, of course, that's what happened in the early 90s, when you the, the Mac suddenly appeared, typographers were pushed to the side, they lost their careers, and, and the printing industry, so all of a sudden, you're, you're not ahead of the curve enough to realize the position you could be in, and that's very much about what we're, we're talking. Can I add something about that? Because you mentioned fear, and I don't want to get off that, because... To me, fear is... I concentrate very much on... I think addictions cover so many things, because I think fear is an addiction. Verbal, physical abuse at home by your husband or your wife is, is all addictions, to me. Because you, you've got a choice, but the but the problem with addictions is you are addicted to be in that environment. It's it's what you know and understand, and unfortunately, you're comfortable with it. But if I could take all of those words with my knowledge, I I would highlight fear as being the greatest problem for people. Well, I think that's true, and part of that fear is the attachment to the way things are. Fear will freeze you and immobilize you so you can't think and you can't move. And partly because you're so identified with who you are and what you have, whether it's good or bad, you know what it is that you have, you know who you are, even if it's not working for you. And so because you're so attached to that, you become stuck. The the fear is a component of that, and it's so overwhelming that you lose your capacity to to reason, maybe to take in new information that would allow you the freedom to try something different and create something better. Could you define that into two areas? One of them would be, in human terms, codependency, and in material terms could be everything we live in, consumerism. There are those two major elements that that keep us in fear, and I and I'm actually thinking that the codependency is the worst thing. <laughs> but is that what you're talking about here as being part of this this problem? Well, it can be. You know, it, codependency typically involves two people, and so you're kind of facilitating the extension of delusion in another person. If you're codependent with them, you don't want to talk about deeper truths that might change behavior and lead to higher level of functioning because people get upset and you don't want to upset anybody. So you 
are codependent. You, you need them. You don't want to do anything because you're afraid they might leave if you really speak up. And so you go along with dysfunctional behavior, and people support each other in a codependent, which has a, a negative connotation kind of way, uh, as a way to keep the status quo. In, in order to, to find that, that consciousness or that awakening, I think that the pastor would say that you have to even put aside your family and you have to look to God. Absolutely. And then when you you know you have God, you know you're fully conscious, you are fully structured inside. Now you can elect to, if you want to, because now you have the wisdom who to help and not who to help, mm -hmm. because you, you understand that whole shocking dilemma of enabling people, then, then you can start making change. But I, I, I think the, the pastor in, that term, in those terms is probably right, is that, is that you have to find yourself first and, and discard everybody else around you. I think the spiritual realm, which is one of the, the chapters, is probably the most important because that provides the foundation of self to give the strength and the wisdom to do whatever it takes to make your life work. If you realize that everything comes from God's grace, then you realize, who's calling the shots here? Who's really helping me? You know, is, is it this person? Or it may be coming through that person because God works through people. And so you know, people can be very instrumental in our life and can be very helpful. But ultimately, if you kind of look beyond the, the, the form and beyond the, the, the delusion that everything is kind of what it seems here in a physical material kind of way and can see the, the hand behind everything, you can start to develop a, a real faith based on experience to know that if I'm really connected to my soul, if I'm in harmony with these divine forces and I follow my intuition based on some deep realization, good things will come out of that. It will be led to the right people, the right places, the right thing. And even just by living in that state, you, because we talked about the magnetic field potential, that you will have an impact on other people. If you start praying for the people who are the, the most negative around you, wonders happen. People all of a sudden start to change. The possibilities are endless. Mm -hmm. And that's, of course, when you start making really informed decisions, mm -hmm. sensible decisions. We're, we're getting ever closer to the end of the program, but I'm going to the, the second of your principles, believe in yourself and open doors to great possibilities. And I, I think that we've encompassed that. In the third principle, you were saying rise above your conditioning and, and societal pressures. Well, I think we've covered that as well because we're talking about the manipulation, the consumerism, the corporate mansion and the way that it ensures that once once every day we need to go to Walmart, we need to buy this brand, we need to be part of society to have that image, then we need to go to this certain place to really reflect that so that other people know that you're really switched on and that is what encompasses manipulation and this societal pressures that you talk about. Well, it's true, but it's also beyond material issues. People have this kind of group think in a way that they get influenced by the people around them and start to believe a certain thing. 
And one of the stories in the book was from, or is from Doug DeCenci, who a uh, great baseball player who took over third base from Brooks Robinson. His story is very compelling. I get chills every time I read it. You know, he's 24 years old and he got 30,000 people booing at him because he's not Brooks Robinson. He had a lot of problems with his manager, who was a very gruff guy. And he was brought up in the 50s to be very respectful of authority. He actually went into therapy, which was before sports psychology became in vogue, to work out his internal issues to realize that if he just stayed identified with the way he thought he should be based on the way he was brought up, he wasn't going to have a professional career. He started confronting his manager because he he had that freedom. And Jung talks about individuation. This really is about that theory of individuation is that in order to really mature and become a full functioning wise human being, you have to transcend the social culture that you're in if it's limiting. And it's dysfunctional. It, it, it always amazes me. Most programs will always come back to Jung ahead of ahead of time, and and yet so many of those principles and those methodologies that are talked about are so relevant to today. Absolutely. We're going on now to the fourth principle: develop a positive state of mind to exponentially increase the probability of achieving your goals. What is the what is the methodology there? The methodology is to learn how not to be identified with the contents of your mind. We're talking meditation. Because the mind generates uh, stuff, and it's not always positive. Doubt, fear, whatever. If you want to maintain a positive state of mind, one, you need to surround yourself by positive people and don't be around people who will pull you down. Two, if you spend every day communing with a place in yourself that is positive, and for me that's uh, a connection to my soul because the nature of that is a very positive place. And when things come up that could be filled with doubt or fear, because you're not attached to what's going on in your mind and you realize that you're more than your mind, you can let it go and say, well, I know that stuff isn't going to help me. This stuff is very true for athletics and it's very true for life. That's interesting because I would coming to the fifth principle, a depth of heart will give you the drive, determination, and inspiration to persevere. And I was wondering why you didn't say a depth of heart and mind. But I guess in a way you've just answered my question. You, you've just preempted me there. But just to clarify that, you say a depth of heart. Right. Where, why did you omit mind, mind in that? Because of my training, first as a psychologist and then having these spiritual experiences as a yogi of consciousness, I actually use the word separately. Consciousness is beyond the mind. I mean, As you know, and some of our listeners may know, you can die. You can be clinically dead, brain dead for 45 minutes, come back and have no brain damage. And usually you come back wiser because you were having experiences on the other side. The mind, according to our understanding of the mind, the brain is dead, so by Western standards, there is no mind. Consciousness is beyond the mind. And so when I talk about something deeper, I don't say the mind because I actually see that as kind of a limiting thing. In yogic philosophy, this really cracked me up as a psychologist, in Sankhya yoga philosophy, they have two qualities of mind. One is called manas and one is called buddhi. Now, if you just are in your normal, everyday life, all your life force energy is going through your senses and it's connected through your body. 
the the yogis say, well, that's a, kind of a body consciousness state of mind that's kind of conscious and subconscious kinds of things. The yogis regard that as delusion. That's what Western medicine specializes in, right? Western psychology. When they talk about buddhi, it's a discriminative intellect that comes from awakening consciousness through meditation, where you now have greater intuition and have a, a more uh, heightened capacity to discern things. So consciousness supersedes the mind. You're, you're almost going into areas of soul now. Exactly. Which is, uh, you could talk for hours on soul. Um, we are running out of time, unfortunately, but I'm getting to six. Spiritual realization can awaken you with a depth of wisdom, faith, and access to unseen forces that will support and guide you in your most difficult times. The unseen forces in that statement. God's grace. We, we are surrounded by an array of spiritual beings. And the depth of wisdom. Faith is the important word for me, really, in that in that point. Uh, I always go back to the faith that you would see in Noah. I always cite him as a great example of faith. I don't think there's probably anybody else who had more faith mm -hmm. than to um, uh, spend hundreds of, of years building a boat and then sitting there wondering when, it, when or whether it was going to rain. Right. Would that be a good example for this statement? Well, I think it is, because there's blind faith and there's true faith, and a true faith is a result of direct experience. And when you have that inner communion, your deeper intuition opens up and you know things. And when you get that information, it's usually pretty good. Personal coaching will allow you to rapidly learn, adapt, and change. Um, personal coaching, can you define that for me? Well, it comes in all different kinds of forms. And basically, if you open yourself up to somebody who could be a mentor or a teacher, but it's just the belief that you realize you don't know everything there is in the world, and if you allow people to, to help you with information, uh, you can maximize your, your potential. It's the people who cut themselves off and say, I don't want to hear it, I don't want to do it, I know everything, they limit themselves. So you, you've got to learn who to to work with and who not to work well, with. That's true. And I was wondering about the word coaching. Was that sort of a pun here because of the nature of the book, <laughs> but, or was that... No, a no, well-used word. No, I think have. it's well-used because in this day and age, psychology, psychotherapy is kind of less uh, in vogue. Life coaching, personal coaching, I mean, it, it's a different kind of field and it, coaches come in all ways, shapes, and forms. We finish up at the eighth um, principle and this is the one I love. Emotional intelligence will determine how effectively you can react and respond in highly stressful circumstances emotional intelligence well you know everyone is familiar with intellectual IQ you got to take tests you go to school you learn things but the fact is that we are an integrated uh, being and our feelings our emotions are very important and if those are out of control then we have no self-mastery and so we have to learn how to master our emotional life so and there's a educational process that goes on for that that's emotional intelligence when is it the right time to use emotion and the wrong time? You know, I look at my programming and I always say to my guests, I will do my hardest to remain pragmatic and constructive and unemotional. 
But are there times in life when you are allowed to use emotion to make a statement? Well, not only to make a statement, human connectedness comes through emotion. It's, It's a feeling. If you don't feel something, people don't get it that you care. Right. They get it more by the fact that you your heart is open. You might cry with them if something really sad is going on. There are constructive ways to use emotion through your heart that help people bond, help people have more empathy, more compassion, more connection. The problem is when emotions get out of control like greed, anger, fear, jealousy, and people are just starting to go into reaction. Those are very destructive forces. And you cannot live a successful life and be productive if you lose control of yourself like that. Is this the difference between sympathy and empathy? Uh, That would be part of it. Certainly part of it. In winding up here with this, this book, what would you say to those not only in this arena but in any arena of life that if they pursue these principles and they still in any stage of life get to a point years down the line where they come up against a barrier a fence can we all expect be expected to come across a problem now and again absolutely except that we're better armed if we're fully aware fully conscious and you have a a kind of a, a set of tools that will help you deal with that Life always has issues. Yeah, I've talked to you about this hero concept of people needing more heroes and really possessing so many of these traits, so many of these, these human elements. But it is, it, it is nevertheless the, the, the hero and anybody uh, th- that is taking this journey, would you not say to accept now and again that we are going to come across a problem the big difference is that when you're fully aware and you're fully conscious that you get over it a lot quicker. You get over it because you accept it. You don't expect life to be perfect. And so you're not reacting in a negative way against it, which frees up all your energy and resources to deal with it and to move through it and get over it much more quickly. What would your advice be to, to listeners, to people who are going to read this wonderful book of how they can begin this journey if they're finding themselves in pretty dark circumstances, what is the the best way for them to kick that off? Well, my first advice is apply the teachings. It's one thing to read it. It's another thing to do it. Right? There's a lot of uh, specific suggestions around meditation and the coaching or whatever. Is Embrace the things that are offered in the book and incorporate them into your life because no matter how bad things are, there's always a silver lining you can come out the other side, but you have to do the work to get there. And do you think there are any types of people that may be close to them who they should stay close to, who they could share this with? Well, sure. I think, like I said earlier, environment is stronger than willpower. So stay close to the people that love you, that support you, uh, and will help bring more positive aspects into your life and avoid the people who are negative, destructive, and undermine you. 
Dr. Ronald Mann, it's been a pleasure having you on the program today. I do wish you success with this book. It's a wonderful book. And again, for the listeners, it's coming out on July. July 1. And where, where can they find this uh, book? In a major bookstore. Uh, we'll have it also online, Amazon.com, whatever. If they go to my website, ronman.com, there's information there. And there's also a Facebook fan page, facebook.com slash bouncing back, that has a lot of information on it, too. Ron Mann, thank you so much. Thank you. And to our listeners, I hope that you have enjoyed this program as much as I have. You can gain information on this and any other program in the series at davidgibbons.org. Meanwhile, wherever you are in this world, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. David Gibbons in Discussion welcomes listeners' comments and viewpoints at its blog at davidgibbons.org. This programming is supported by organizations and firms in the private and public sectors. again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the voice america business channel for more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest please visit voiceamericabusiness.com the voice america talk radio network is the worldwide leader in live internet talk radio visit voiceamerica.com the views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the voice america talk radio network its staff and management 